Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Join me tonight, we have Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello. We're also joined by GamesBeat's Westworld philosopher-in-residence, Rowan <laughs> Kaiser. Good evening. And uh, today we're going to be traveling back in time to 1998, uh, which I cannot believe was 20 years ago. I am starting to feel increasingly old uh, as we do this show. I guess I sort of now get a sense of how Troy felt uh, when he started the show. Uh, but I think this is a year that, uh, Rowan, you had a lot to say about because I think one of the general, like, party lines when it comes to 1998 is it's like one of the most pivotal years in games history and it's a banner year for strategy games uh but it sounds like maybe you're not quite as high on it well one of the things about 1998 is that three of the biggest games of this year are games that i don't like the term overrated but that's probably the simplest way that i can say that about them and it's still a fantastic year for games it's not so great for strategy games there's 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 some real gems and absolute classics but uh uh in terms of its reputation it's pretty well deserved i think there are a few other years like even 93 we had this discussion last time might be a little bit better but um it's really hard to go wrong with this one especially in rpgs which are my other genre um this is a very strong case for the best year ever for them um yeah, it's 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 a hell of a year. I think it's also a year that is regarded as pivotal uh, across a lot of genres, right? Like 1998 is Half-Life. It's uh, Ocarina of Time. Uh, and these are two games that, well, certainly at least one of them, like Half-Life, was sort of re- regarded as sort of a sea change uh, in the way first-person shooters and the way a lot of, uh, you know, single-player narrative action games, uh, you know, are made. Uh, But then you have Zelda, which is kind of, you know, defines a lot of people's uh, memories of both the, uh, you know, N64 and their expectations for what, like, a modern Zelda game could be. A lot of people still, you know, will, will go to the mats saying that that was the best one ever. And then there were just a lot of other great games that that came out that year right like you have metal gear solid um you have one of my favorite adventure games of all time uh grim fandango which i love despite uh some of the incredibly obscure puzzles like this is this is a year that is easy to it it was it was a great year to, to live through it is also a year that it is very easy to get very nostalgic and rose tinted in uh in remembering yeah. Well, one of the things that makes this year stand out is um, you talked about where, where these sort of pivots in game history are. Um, and we talked about, I talked about this in more detail in the 97 podcast, so you can go listen to the intro to that one. But uh, the sort of bare bones of it are in the mid 90s, you have a bunch of corporate consolidation that's sort of falling out here as companies are trying to figure out how much money can be invested and what where the money should go, which leads to a kind of burst of well-funded creativity in a weird way. Uh, technically, you also have uh, 3D graphics and CD space being uh, changing the amount and form of things that you can put into games. Like we mentioned Zelda. This is the first 3D Zelda. It's a huge deal. It's what people you know, think of when they think of Zelda, especially if they're a little bit younger than, you know, you or I might be. Uh, 
There's also an increasing crossover of consoles and PCs. Uh, this is not quite hitting what it would in it, what it will in a couple of years, but uh, I think one of the some of the games that we might not talk about too much here, but like Shogo Mobile Armor Division oh, is the game. Oh, we gotta talk that... about Shogo. <laughs> okay, we're talking about Shogo, but uh, the, there are all these games that companies are. They might not be porting them to the other systems. So like it's usually PlayStation and PC at this point. But they're sort of thinking about where these might all fit in. King's Quest Eight, I think, here, Mask of Eternity, famous for kind of ruining the series by turning it into an action-adventure game instead of a pure adventure game. But that's also sort of Roberta Williams seeing that this is where the market is going. It's going towards the Tomb Raiders and the Zeldas more than the point-and-click adventures. Uh, so that's a... That's an increasing thing and as we move forward, especially into the early 2000s. That's one of the dominant uh, narratives going on. But the big thing that I think is happening this year that's worth talking about a lot is how, how much interface is being solidified in some respects and um, experimented with in others. Uh, this is the N64 era, which has one of the weirdest conventional uh game controllers of all time and i say conventional to separate it from like the wiimote or uh the the wii u right but it's a gamepad but not like other gamepads right right um and then over on the pc you have the people have like definitely said mouse and keyboard is where it's at we are we are going with that and how do we make that work well and when we could talk about Baldur's gate which is a huge game for this year uh that's that's one of the most important things going on so i think that uh working on interface is something that we'll talk about with both the strategy games and the non-strategy games here i think one of the other things that is really striking about this year like when i when i look over 1998 and i remember it like i feel like this is so when i got into pc gaming uh, and and Troy, you probably sort of went through this as well, but like early days of PC gaming, you were kind of a Renaissance game gamer, no matter what, right? Like you you sort of played well. What's good, right? Sometimes it was the uh, it, you know it could be like a Falcon 4.0, or you know when we when I started playing, it was Falcon 3.0. Uh, one of those games getting an editor's choice, like oh you have to play this. Uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of room to experiment and be weird, and there were a lot of interesting like genre bending games uh that sort of defined your experience in the early days of the pc and and being a pc gamer to some extent meant playing all of it in 1998 i feel like we might be just about at the top of that crest before consolidation and mainstreaming is going to begin taking its toll right like i'm seeing on this list like tom clancy's rainbow six and do you remember what a like this was an odd sort of shooter right it was it, it was half uh tactical planning game and then half first person shooter and it was really cool and launched a new series but the series got away from that that blend pretty much as quickly as possible right like rainbow six is now an action multiplayer fps and, and kind of has been for for years um but like in 1998 none of that's really happened yet and it's it's a year where you know I look through the the major games of that year and to a degree I guess it all felt like it could be for me uh whereas I think in later years there's maybe more push toward uh either turning 
genres increasingly into niches or making them ever more accessible by watering down the defining characteristics. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to put a finger on, you know, when the shift from broadly appealing, excellent PC games turned into, well, this is the genre expectation, let's do it. Because every year has got a little bit of weirdness in it. Uh, 1998 is, you know, it, it is a year with a lot of odd experimentation. I mean, Rowan did mention Mask of Eternity, which is, you know, the effort to turn a, an adventure game into a third-person action game. We get, we get Die by the Sword, which is kind of a, let's make a first-person shooter, but with swords. Oh, God, I remember uh, that type thing which is it was just so weird and awkward that was the one that had realistic swords like one hit and you're dead style sword fighting not like it was just so funny looking um and i remember you know laughing at the image at the time and some of the crude videos at the time back the few videos we had online back then um and it is you know but it comes with that same energy it's like oh we we like the medieval world we want to make a medieval game, but people like FPSs, so let's try to make something that crosses those. So you get this, you know, mutant dog die by the sword. Um, you have, uh, you mentioned Falcon 4.0, what comes out, which comes out this year. You also get European Air War this year, in 1998. So this is kind of, I would think, the last great year of the flight simulation, where you have, you know, the broadly accessible, amazing European Air War. And the finish your pilot's lessons before you play this game, Falcon 4.0. Yes. Um, so we have kind of the crest, the, the culmination of, you know, two paths for the flight sim. And there really aren't that many amazing flight sims. After. You never get two really great groundbreaking flight sims in a year after 1998. Um, after European Air War, which is one of my all-time favorite games that I wish I could, you know, easily install and play these days. Do you remember days. the sheer size of those dogfights? <laughs> you could have... It's, it was the first, I think the last, you know, World War II game where you would fly into a bomber formation and they were everywhere. Um, it was just outstanding. Uh, uh, I've never enjoyed a game, a flight as much as I enjoyed a European Air War. Um, and Falcon 4.0 just scared the hell out of me. Didn't know what to do with it. Um, and that was, you know, the, that was the, but I mean, the, uh, in Soren's analysis of, uh, Soren Johnson's analysis of Flight Sims, 4.0 is kind of the peak of where Flight Sims went wrong. Uh, though, you know, people who loved it really, really loved it. Very realistic, modern Flight Sim um, that took advantage of all of the power and memory and data you could fit onto a computer in the late 90s, you know, just really pushing the envelope for what you could do in a realistic flight sim. You know, um, the question about that, because I always sort of wondered about this, because um, I think, because it sounds like you and I are coming to this genre very much from the same place. Like, I loved European Air War. It scared the hell yeah. out of me at times. Like, flying into those bomber formations, it was one of the few games where it made you realize how daunting it was to track what the hell was going on in a World you War II. You never had enough era. bullets. No. You God. never had enough bullets. Uh, but... I think the the other aspect of this is, I, w I wonder to an extent to what degree it was driven by like specialist, especially re specialty reviewers or uh, like a specialist community because like after this Falcon four was daunting as hell, but I feel like what what happens after this is because you can get these ever greater levels of simulation and detail and granularity, 
that increasingly people reviewing Sims are going to be Sim people who just want that as close to one-to-one -one fidelity as we can get. And the sort of compromises that were kind of baked, like were part and parcel of the European era war model, the uh, Jane's uh, flight sim era, the kind of things that like made it passable to like flight sim people, but also fun as hell for you know people like you and me. Those things start getting games knocked down as just being inauthentic, as being uh, sim light, being you know like little baby games in, in some ways. And so like after Falcon 4.0. It really seems like that community increasingly hives itself off behind like specialty like fan modules, right? Like you see people making making expansions for flight sims for the fan community. They're they're unlicensed, but you're, they're basically professional modding teams uh, developing these games, and that's a model that is still really successful in in flight sims. But meanwhile, you're never going to see anything really break through that's following the European air war or, um, you know, or Jane's or, or God knows, uh, you'll never see like another secret weapons of the Luftwaffe, uh, come again. It's really hard. This was an interesting time to be, you know, I was 1998. I was in graduate school, uh, getting, getting back into serious gaming, uh, after I'd, you know, done my problem, my, Thesis, not my thesis defense, but my proposal defense. So just doing research and playing games all the time. And maybe some writing on the side. Um, and this is kind of... The, the internet is you know, taking off. There's Websites are starting to push into where games magazines were. The games magazines would be a going concern for quite some time yet. We have, um, we have Usenet communities where the specialists uh, would hang out. Uh, in you know 98, 99, 2000, uh, through this period, uh, the rise of Usenet, and if people don't remember Usenet. It's you know kind of it it, it it it's it's Reddit. It's like it's like subreddits, only even dorkier because you would need to find your way there and know how to use them, uh, know how to read them. Um, so you would have you know simulation subreddits. You would have war games subreddit uh, sub Usenet and. Flight sim use nets and strategy game use nets and RPG use nets, and a lot of media would hang out in these, and you know you have to wonder about the you know the pollination of ideas and who's reading what and who's making games for whom. Um, it's kind of like the old games journal list is melding with uh, the audience. Uh, in mm -hmm. in, law, in like, like Twitter today, I guess would be a nice analogy. Only it's not necessarily as public because there's just so many threads and you can't read them all. Uh, so I wonder if there there is this if there was this issue of oh there are specialists and then they are absorbing this information and therefore punishing games that aren't as heavy. I'm not quite sure. I have to actually do the research on that. I mean, I have these boxes of old computer game strategy plus magazines I don't know, sitting in my uh, closet. I have no idea what to do with it. I'm not going, never going to read them and I'm not going on my shelf anymore. Um, but, you know, stuff from the 90s. And, you know, we have a young Tom Chick and a young Bruce Garrick and I have names that have fallen out uh, who don't people who don't review anymore the the, the Jeff Vitoses uh, and the like who he used to be a pretty big name uh, in games journalism back in the day um, I wonder if there is this shift from people reviewing everything to no you review this sort of thing and you review this sort of thing and you review this sort of thing 
if we do have this creation of specialists and expertise. Because when I got into the games media, there kind of was an expectation that there was expertise. And that's good, because I really knew one thing well. Um, What's that? How to make a beef stew. Okay. And strategy games. We need we need okay. somebody who knows Roman history <laughs> to review this civilization game. Rome was a my, civ, right? <laughs> my my first paid review was Victoria was Victoria too. No, the first Victoria was Victoria. No kidding. Yeah. Talk about because shot. because the editor yeah. Steve Bauman saw me commenting on a forum and said, "You seem to understand this game that no one else does. Will you write a review for it?" And <laughs> And that was that. And now you're the lead on Victoria 3. This is amazing. Troy, breaking news, three moves ahead. Uh, (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, Victoria 3, lead designer, Troy Goodfellow, subtitled, Niall Ferguson was right. (laughs) (laughs) So, 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 I mean, 1998 is, I mean, I didn't play Ocarina of Time. And I don't, never, I don't understand the Zelda series, but this is, like, really big for the Zeldas, right? This okay. is widely considered the best game of all time by people who put together those annoying polls about the best game of, games people, of all time. People need oh. to settle down, maybe, anyway. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that yeah. is not the best no, game of all even. time. It's, it's Anything Zelda is, like, inflated beyond belief. Um Sorry, 2017, the same holds for you. But anytime you get a moderately competent Zelda game in a year, people say it's the greatest year in games. Doubly so if it's borrowing from games that have existed in other spaces for ages but haven't made it into a Zelda game, and then it's like, my God, what an innovation. Uh, Anyway, uh, God, this most passive-aggressive, let's celebrate 1998 by airing our grievances against our peers. but no, this is this is one of the things. Like three of these games that people would probably say, like Zelda, uh, Half Life, and Baldur's Gate, these are not my favorite games. That I think they might have done like bad things for the genres that they were in. But even still, this this year fucking rules. Uh, so, do you yeah. want to talk about some of these games in some detail and where they yeah. fit? Yeah. Well, one of the things you said about the genre consolidation, I think, is interesting because. Uh, I used to be a big old racing game fan, and looking at this list, I see exactly where the split (laughs) hits me. Um, Because, like, I I loved the Sierra Dynamics racing games, uh, the NASCAR ones especially. Mm -hmm. NASCAR 2, I, like, I created Babylon 5 skins for my cars. This is a true story. Everyone is just telling you, you guys have always been the most you you can be. (laughs) Well, you, I doubt you knew about the NASCAR part of that. Uh, and uh, my parents especially like were super into racing and historical racing. So the release of Grand Prix Legends was supposed to be a big event. Like this is, this is the game that we can all play as a family even. Although my mom had largely stopped at that point. But like we used to all play the Formula One arcade style racing games from mm-hmm. the 80s and stuff. And the Grand Prix Legend comes out and it's just utterly impenetrable unless you've got like a thesis out on 1998 or 1968 in uh formula one racing uh i i just like this game is gorgeous i wish i could get into it i don't want to at all um and then also need for speed three hot pursuit comes out and i'm like this is exactly where i want to be these tracks are awesome these cars go fast this all feels nice i am i am out of the the racing sims i am 
in on the arcade games and like that wasn't necessarily split that existed so much five years before with world circuit and nascar 2 well and gran turismo's in there kind of splitting the difference and it you know right. what i mean like gran turismo <laughs> increasingly will become a series where it's like look you love cars and you want the feeling that you're actually interacting with the real object of the car like and need for speed is not going to give that to you but you also don't want to basically go to skip barber uh for like actual driver training in order to play <laughs> grand prix legends like grand prix legends is really interesting because like this is a this is a holy text in racing sim circles uh and i certainly like will get up my own ass and like nostalgic about it but i also vividly remember how completely impossible it was to play i even had a racing wheel at the time and like if you, like most people didn't have force feedback those cars were damn near undrivable the, the handling model was so demanding uh, and the cars were so primitive that the 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 game was just really really punishing and there was like no recovery from it uh, so it's i don't think it's an accident that like Grand Prix Legends is sort of the moment where Jordan Keimer, like Jordan Keimer is making iRacing these days. That's what his project is. That's where Grand Prix Legends ended is a subscription racing service that actual like pro drivers use to train on and compete in the off season. Like that was where that arc went, uh, which is kind of the sim community writ large, right? <laughs> like that's uh, in 1998, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, they're about to the sim community is about to exit mainstream gaming and at least in the case of racing there's enough space and interest to allow for things like uh need for Sp speed three hot pursuit and a slightly more authentic uh uh gran turismo though i must say hot pursuit's also one of those double-edged swords because like talk about a game that totally <laughs> in some ways it is the um it's like the oh god I'm for, I am I'm blanking uh, the the space forex that we always bitch about uh, Rowan <laughs> the one that looms too large Mouse uh, Ryan yes yes in some ways it's the it's it's the moo too of hot of, of Need for Speed because it's like the one that gives you the purest. Uh, like adrenaline rush of the cop chases and that looms over the rest of the series in ways that are both good and sometimes just outright destructive yeah i i never managed to get the that feeling from any of the later need for speed games burnout could got it to me burnout three but yeah know, uh need for speed has always just felt slightly off ever since but that one i loved so looking at this from a from a strategy standpoint um it's it's an important year if if for no other reason than like this is this is StarCraft's time right and and this is uh, th this is going to be a like a critical like genre defining game uh, the RTS genre is going to be referring to that design again and again and again uh, for forever until we're all dead uh, after after this game comes out but looking down the rest of this list again there is a lot of room for offbeat weirdness in in strategy yeah. at this time in a way that like i'm not sure if, if you're into like weird genre mashups and people trying just completely off the wall things boy 1998 feels like it was your year <laughs> yeah well one thing that i think helps a lot to to go back to other games for just a sec yeah um baldur's gate 
was a very traditional role-playing game in a lot of ways. Straight up AD&D rules, um, you've got your Thacko, you've got your, you know, dual classing, all of that. One of the things that separates it from everything else is that it's got a real-time strategy interface. You have your six party members, and you lasso them up and send them into battle. And it's just like people have realized how to make it so that your mouse controls are kind of generalized across even different genres, but within a specific point of view or whatever. Lasso, right-click. Lasso, right-click. This is uh, stuff that is, you know... In, in our core understanding of interfaces now that was not quite at that level before the mid-90s. And with Baldur's Gate, you see that sort of breaking through. And with a lot of the other strategy games here, you see them either saying, okay, we're sort of using the, the RTS bare bones and the interfaces that everybody knows in order to start getting weird. Or they're saying, let's see if we can do similar styles of games with a different interface. And that's something like Battlezone. Uh, so this this is what I think gives this year so, so much of its weirdness is that you get the mouse control either set or gone in a different direction. Okay, I'm going to regret doing this, but I just I have to know, uh, and I know we want to get to strategy games uh, eventually, but why don't you love Baldur's Gate? Um, I don't actually like the real-time strategy combat RPG hybrid, uh, Infinity Engine combat has always struck me as a really annoying bastard hybrid of two things that I sort of generally like. Uh, it doesn't, it's not quite turn-based in a way that's satisfying. It's not quite real-time in a way that's satisfying. The best way to play is, like, put it on an easy level mm -hmm. and press right-click and all your guys go kill all the other guys, but that's also not satisfying. Um, and I, I just feel like that tension and annoyance gets in the way of the story-based Infinity Engine games like Baldur's Gate and Planescape Torment. Icewind Dale, because it was just like, you're only doing combat, like, that actually relaxed me and I could concentrate on it a little bit, little bit better. But, uh, yeah, just that, that style of combat is not my favorite, and that's continued with Pillars of Eternity and even Tyranny, which I think might be my favorite of these in this some ways. yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's just something feels off about that to me, and I wish they were just straight-up turn-based. So, Troy, before we get into some of the heaviest hitters here, mm -hmm. what's your secret favorite, like, unloved misfit on this list? The thing that, like, people don't really talk about from 1998 that maybe didn't even totally fit or succeed at all the things it was trying to do, but damn it, you love it for its wonkiness. There's not a whole lot of really wonky stuff here. I mean, you Great have... Great Battles of Caesar? I know you're a fan oh, of those. That, I mean, oh, yeah, Great Battles of Caesar. Classic to me, Caesar. Thing. It's, a, it's, another, it's another Great Battles game. It's, it's fine. It's got some really good battles in it, some really good struggles. But, you know, it's just another nerd ancient game that I love very much. But it's <laughs> not really... I mean, People's General is probably the one that people forget. Uh, People's General is a Panzer's General, Panzer General type game, only it's set in the modern era, and it's the, the Chinese taking over the world or something, as I recall. It's a sequel to Panzer General 2. It, you know, it's China versus NATO. It's aggressive China, which was because, you know, it's 1998. The, the, the Russians aren't a problem anymore. Who's making, who's making Russian taking over the world games? 
nobody. Uh, so we have uh, People's General, which is if you if you like Panzer General games that have really there was a time when strategy games tried to have stories, and sometimes you would get something like as campy and weird as the Red Alert games. Uh, the Command and Conquer series, which are terrible, but the stories are meant to be... I'm not sure if they're ever meant to be more than camp. They certainly lowered themselves to camp, and then they took the campiness too seriously and they got weird, but anyway. People's General is kind of in that fiction zone. Some of the Harpoon uh, expansion packs got into the same stuff, where you'd read the notes, and it's about uh, a czarist coup in Russia, and they build a big navy, and they try to take over the Mediterranean. Great, amazing fiction leading up to a pretty decent battle, but it's really about the uh, uh, Tom Clancy bullshit outlining why you're fighting here to begin with. People's General has a bit of that going on in trying to conceive of what a a mid-90s Chinese takeover of Asia would look like. you know, at this point, China is not seen as a huge economic threat. There's just thought, oh, China is in the nice... The Deng Xiaoping's making China look kind of nice type of stuff going on, and it's so it's kind of a weird game just for how the scenarios are set up. The, the, the gameplay itself is just a standard Panzer General type game. You know, it's a little bit more sophisticated than Panzer General 1 and 2. It's not as puzzle-centered as, you know, the traditional uh, model or as Panzer Corps uh, still follows. So I think it's a game probably worth checking out if you can find it. It's an SSI game. Uh, like the Panzer General games, and it is just kind of funny how it stands out there. This is this is based on the Panzer General Two engine, which we praised a lot the last time we were we did 1997. Um, it has those gorgeous maps. I never played People's General. I saw screenshots of it. Um, I I hope it had anywhere near as good of this. The quality of music as well, but uh, SSI was was on a roll with uh, their looks with that mini series. But then they went on to Panzer General Three, perhaps a little bit too quickly. Well, but that's the one where they go try to go three D, right? Yeah, Panzer General yeah. Three is when they do that, and they they have like you're set up to be a specific general, so you're playing uh, um, Rommel or whoever. Yeah, uh, which is a little bit maybe too personalized when you're talking about playing as a Nazi. Yeah, and especially, again, when you're talking about this series, which is already such an abstracted, like, you know, popcorn version of World War II. Um, boy, boy, tell you, like, a theme. I, I know it came up in 97. It comes up in this episode. It will continue to be a thing. Uh, people not figuring out how to transition to 3D or even whether or not that's even a good idea. Uh, cause like, yeah, again, um, you, you mentioned King's quest. Uh, this is about the time that, uh, you know, you're going to get that terrible Gabriel Knight game. Uh, Grim Fandango leans into the fact that like that, what makes that brilliant is that like, we can do some things really well with 3d except characters, uh, that look <laughs> anything less than horrific. So you're all skeletons and it's awesome. Um, to, Two of my favorite RPGs got sequels this year that were somewhere between Disappointment and Disastrous and Quest for Glory and Return to Crondor. Yeah. And 3D could take a fair amount of the blame for that. So speaking of, but here's the thing. I know why that pressure was there because it was like, damn it, if you're a modern game, like this is like, again, in the backdrop of this era, I think 98, certainly by 97 or 98 is when I bought my first 3D card. 
uh, I got a a sort of a knockoff. I don't even think it was even. Um, I, my first car was definitely a voodoo card, uh, if you remember those guys. Um, and so I kind of expect, like, yeah, 3D, this is where games are going. This is what looks cool. And I think that is one of the reasons why, at that time, I totally missed Star Wars Rebellion. Like, I played it. And secretly, I enjoyed it way more than I gave myself credit for enjoying it. Like, I played a shit ton of Star Wars Rebellion in 1998, 1999. But I convinced myself that it was still kind of shitty because what I'd had in mind was like big, epic. Basically, I was picturing, I didn't I didn't have this in, in my head yet, but I was basically picturing something like Homeworld, but Star Wars. That's kind of what I thought like Rebellion could and should be. And instead, Star Wars Rebellion is this really interesting, uh, you know, 2D strategy game with... 3D-ish battles, uh, but that entire battle engine is really kind of abstracted, oh. half-assed. Um, <laughs> it's it ain't much of a thing. Is is Hol- what I, how I'd put it? Hilarious. Yeah, hilarious <laughs> is a good way to put it. You're basically given like four commands, right? It's like you can do a right hook with your fleet, a left hook. You can do a hammer blow or a uppercut, and that was basically all you could do with your fleet squadrons. Um, and they were all very crude 3D, and then the fighters were little like sprites that zipped around, and it looked very chintzy. But that's not what the core of that game was. Like, you know, we did a show on Star Wars Rebellion a couple years ago. Uh, I think it was a a very good show. You can go back and and listen to it uh, because I think we really start digging into what made that game special. And I'd played the game very recently for that one, so I was much fresher on it. But um, I think the pitch for Star Wars Rebellion, and if if I'd had this frame of reference at the time, it would have been exciting. It's still exciting. Star Wars Rebellion is like somebody made a very simple paradox Star Wars game uh, in a lot of ways. And I just didn't have that frame of reference. And so I looked at Star Wars Rebellion, and what I expected was, I don't know, an RTS Star Wars or, or, or something. I, I, I just don't know. But instead, I got a really thematically, uh, a really thematically successful and clever strategy game built around Star Wars. And, and I, fundamentally, utterly broken. Parts of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's, what's, yeah. what's the most broken thing? Like, basically, the victory conditions were such oh, yeah. that it was extremely easy to just build a decent-sized fleet, send your heroes into the enemy headquarters or whatever, and get an instant win. Uh, the, the AI did not really defend itself against the threats of actually winning the game and it was far too direct to to do that yeah um, it's definitely there were other, it's there are other aspects the, the game yeah the it, i think when you talk about how it was like a paradox game that makes sense but a paradox game that doesn't quite know itself that it's a paradox game um and w- one of the things that we when we talk about uh real-time strategy in this era is uh we, it was worse in 97 when we were doing Sid Meier's Gettysburg, but the idea that the RTS is a base crafting game versus the RTS is the literal meaning of real-time strategy game. This is a literal meaning of real-time strategy game, but this is not at all a base craft style game where 
well, we have maybe the the purest of those with StarCraft, uh, but with Star Wars Rebellion, you have the difficulty of trying to advertise a game that, if it had been advertised as turn-based or made and advertised as turn-based, might have made a lot more sense, uh, might have been easier to make. But the RTS was so huge that. LucasArts kept chasing that dragon, you know, that after Rebellion, they go into, what was it, Forest Commander, um, which took years to come out, and they they wanted that 3D super Star Wars thing that... I remember telling uh, my friends, like, guys, they're making myth, but a Star Wars game, and boy, was I not correct. I mean, you might have been correct when you said it, it just was not that when it came out and then eventually they went to galactic battlegrounds which was just incredibly generic and boring to me i, I know a lot of people liked it but i i think i got i also didn't late. love empire at war if i'm being quite like there was some decent stuff like in space the art and looked cool but it didn't really work yeah like star wars rebellion i think it it sort of arrives it looks sort of crude for its era and i don't think games and audiences really have developed the vocabulary in 1998 to get what it's trying to do. Uh, I mean, really, you know, who knew uh, that the paradoxes two great insights would be first. What if we just shit can the idea of having endings? Uh, and two, what if you just become a self-referential like industry juggernaut in some ways and just never have to explain what you're doing because people just say you're a paradox <laughs> game and everyone just sort of shrugs and goes like yeah that tracks because <laughs> if, if you've yeah, ever tried to explain to somebody plausible continuous time like even to this day like if i'm like oh yeah this is this is a continuous time game like anywhere i've worked editors are like nobody knows what the fuck that means man like you have to explain you have to explain it but if i cross that out and i'm like paradox style everyone's like oh yeah cool <laughs> we're not complaining so this is a segue into my weird beloved game from this year uh seven kingdoms okay this is a in a lot of ways interface style and kind of perspective it is a conventional real-time strategy game but it is long before um god the one that brian reynolds made uh that we love rise of, rise of nations yeah long before rise of nations it's trying to get that sort of civilization flavor into an rts and it fails at that, but it fails in really, really interesting ways. You have these, like, eight different civilizations that they're built around, like, you gather your resources and then you trade your resources. It's relatively simple. You you send your units out to conquer, conquer neutral cities or your neighbor's cities, and then you use those resources and make more money and make more units. And uh, the loop is very understandable, but it's not the traditional RTS build all your... Uh, worker units and have them go harvest it's a little more abstracted than that which i like a lot uh, the the thing that i remember about this game though is that it just kind of keeps going like it doesn't hit that it it isn't built on that exponential rts style thing where if you have three bases and the enemy has two you can grind them down you will have more units you will be able to you know turn that 
turn those force multipliers into actual multipliers. This is more linear, which leads to games where you're just kind of hanging out. You destroy an enemy at one point, but they have five people survive and go found a new city on the other side of the map. And it was just this really interesting kind of ebb and flow of history game that an RTS just almost always failed at doing um, that manner of uh, something that's not just domination by being fast. And that's something that I was really look, really excited about when I actually found it. And this was about 10 years ago, so I wasn't playing it at the time. It was just a game that was sort of always on my list, and uh, it got made open source. You can find that online. Uh, unfortunately, I tried to play it a week or so ago when we were planning this show, and it does not get along super well with higher resolution monitors. Maybe there's a patch or something for that, but that that made it difficult to try to get back into. But this was uh, a game that I discovered much later that I had always heard pretty good things about and was shocked by it being one of those sort of lost paths that the RTS could have gone down that I really would have preferred that it had gone down. The other thing that you've got going on in this era is... Um you've got attempts to sort of maybe blur the RTS with, with other genres. And I think one of the sort of the major games of the, of this period that's trying to do that is, um, is battle zone, uh, which I never played too much of because it was such a, um, I don't know. It, it, it was such a walking and chew bubblegum type game. I hate that phrase because these are two, not these two things are not hard to do together. And yet I, and yet we that's the that's the idiom we have for it. Oh, look at look at Rob here, able to walk into bubblegum at the same time, like some kind of genius. <laughs> yeah, we got a badass here. Uh but no. Yeah. So so Battlezone is this um and it always felt to me I have no idea if this is true on an engine level or or a design level or what, but like it always felt to me a little bit like somebody merged uh like put an RTS inside a battle uh, a uh Mech Warrior game. But Battlezone is was this really weird uh an interesting attempt to take the brand of the old arcade game, uh, which was pretty much just like a tank themed shooter, right? It was just like you, you you were a little laser tank and you rolled around, and you shot shit. Um and there were a lot of attempts in in the nineties to sort of recapture the magic of old beloved arcade games. But here was I think it was Activision doing something kind of weird uh, by really like throwing a novel, interesting design uh, at this problem where it is the setup for Battlezone is it's like the Soviet Union and the United States during the moon race actually secretly landed tons of shit on the moon and they had a space war up there. Um, And you're commanding the dark side of the moon. And they invented the Vietnam and Afghanistan wars in order to explain why so many people were dead. This was oh, some, this was some good yeah. '90s shit. God damn, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, and so, but the other thing is, you it is still kind of a base building RTS, but you are commanding it from inside your little like hover tank, uh, and so the part of it is you're you're playing a typical RTS, but trying to sort of uh, command it using sort of a point and you know point and indicate uh, <laughs> interface, and then 
simultaneously you're also running around and playing a vehicle shooter uh basically uh on a pretty for the time pretty like sophisticated 3d uh map of the moon right like i remember there being lots of like little folds in the terrain and like it felt good going over those craters and shit and like you know running your tank around there but it was a really odd thing so uh one of the really interesting things about it was that you could hop out and you could be just like a little soldier with a sniper rifle, which, you know, one hit and you're dead, but that was that was a possibility. But you could also get into all the units that you were building, and your your commander tank was usually the best one for working at a strategic level, but there were times where like, you would want to get into the artillery and just blow the shit out of stuff yourself because you were better than the AI. So it, it was it was really ambitious in that respect, and like as a as a strategy game, it was not a resounding success like it was sufficient but as like a strategy hybrid thing i felt like it actually got that balance pretty right and it was not a balance that like made it stick in the memory as an all-time classic for a while it was just like this is a really neat fun thing to do for you know a couple days uh i i think i've played battlezone 2 as well which went to other planets um but yeah, they, these were these were interesting, fun attempts to uh, uh, take the RTS in different interfaces and and apply it, uh, kind of like the the mirror image of Elder's Gate, uh, where the instead of taking the interface, it's uh, leaving the interface and taking the the concepts. Did you play it, Troy? No, I haven't. This sounds fascinating. It it is. It's it's a game that is. I think they're doing like a, a revamped version, or they just put out a revamped so version they, on they, Steam. They're doing two things. There's a new Battlezone game coming, uh, but then they also, as part of this, Rebellion did a remaster, basically of Battlezone One, and I think Battlezone Two as well. Uh, so I mean, this is something that we we can actually revisit soon, uh, and, and probably should maybe this year. Uh, sort of take a gander at these uh, because I think they they are really cool. I'm really curious though. Like again, I remember when I talk about them. I'm very fond of the idea of them. I am very curious. Like I know at the time I bounced off it a little bit. I'm very curious going back to it like now whether I would be quite so enamored of the thought of it. I will. I will get to this when we get to 2000, I think. So just two years from now, people. Uh, but Sacrifice is the game that I thought took this idea and made it absolutely awesome. Uh, that was third person instead of first person and dark fantasy instead of science fiction. But it it had the, the action RTS where you're a wizard controlling your weird-ass fantasy troops. And I think that's the one, that's the one where the, the promise of Battlezone comes to life for me. Yeah, I um the other thing I want to want to shout out here is um the Mech Commander is Mech Commander. Uh because again for for the longest time this was probably the best like tactical me- uh BattleTech experience you could get on the PC. Uh it's I don't think the I don't think the board game was ever really adapted uh to to the PC and most of most of what you encountered was just the the mech sims mech warrior mech warrior 2 uh mercenaries but mech commander was again one of these attempts to uh sort of mod, like 
combine a popular franchise with sort of an RTS wrapper, but then also there's a ton of crunchy, authentic Battletech uh, mech customization. It's very, it's a very fiddly uh, RTS in some ways that that touches on a lot of like the core fantasies of that of that franchise, uh, and that you know was was really pretty beloved uh, for ages. I'm not sure that one has been widely available in a while. I feel like yeah, Mech I Commander... think that one had a license issue. And what one of the problems with this era in general is that like the Windows ninety eight era I have found is one of the hardest to get going on modern machines. Yeah, we we've definitely talked about like how this is this is an era that in some ways falls into this weird valley between like there's a lot of effort from a nostalgic fan community to get games of, like the very early nineties back up and running. Uh and then a lot of stuff post like two thousand six or so uh still works with compatibility settings for for the most part or at least certainly a lot of the more popular games do but this is around that era those older versions of windows where a lot of these games just don't quite get the uh, retro gaming love needed to to keep them up and running but they're not new enough to comfortably exist inside modern hardware configurations it looks like these games were made free uh yeah they were okay. made free and they are on a website that well i'm at the internet archive so maybe they're not on that website anymore um yeah i think that's they were made free over 10 years ago and now god only knows where they are i'm sure they're on abandonware or uh torrent sites right, well, and whether they work on these things or not is also a question somebody that help would us. Be a, that would be a great article on waypoint for when battletech comes out wouldn't it rob it would, though I think the definitive, <laughs> I think the definitive uh, word on, well, PC Gamer did a very good. Uh, God, what, what was that? What's that series called that they used to do in the mag? Uh, it was like backwards compatible or something like that. But they right. did a very good uh, sort of nostalgia retrospective on that one. I think it was Evan uh, who wrote it. Uh, but. Yeah, uh, so I, I think as of a few years ago, at least, there was a decent way to to get access to the game. Uh, I'm not sure what the status is now. Um, so go on. There's there's one more interesting real time strategy hybrid here before we really get into the specific genre meat. I think, um, and it's not one that I'm an expert on, uh, but Commandos in, behind enemy lines was really popular and was kind of the the RTS stealth combination. Grab yeah. a lot of people, and this is a great year for stealth games. You also have Thief and uh, Tintu Stealth Assassin. But okay, I never played that. I don't know how stealthy it is, but it's in the name. I don't know how um, stealthy Metal the original Metal Gear is either. Oh yeah, Metal Gear Solid, obviously very stealth oriented. Uh, that's that's just off in its own platform in my mind because Metal Gear fans are something deserving of that series in all the best ways and worst uh but yeah the commandos is if you guys played that one i think we should we should go with that one next troy did you uh did you mess with that at all i dabbled with it i mean it's yeah. a it's a bit of a it's a, it's a not really it's some stealth a little bit of tactic stuff going on there were a bunch of these uh at the time um there was a robin hood one i think was an old west one it was 
yeah, and they were the same idea um, as, you know, a tactical game where you have little missions that you try to solve. Um, and, you know, they're fine. They're, you know, the Commandos series, there are quite a few of them. I think what like three, two or three um, versions, but, that, but even like then two or three, there were like variations. Like there was Commandos behind enemy lines, and then there was Strike Force at the very end, and then like three in between there. Not every Commandos game got a number. Um, anyway, it was uh, made by City Interactive, as I recall, who, you know, made some interesting stuff uh, over the years. The, the Commandos was their big series. And it was, it was, you know, you have, you had a little, you have a small little squad of soldiers, and they would. To do commando missions. Um, I guess the nearest modern example would be that that uh, that Shogun yeah. game. That, that, that's, yeah, Shadow Tactics. Shadow Tactics. I mean, that's kind of what it was. It was a Shadow Tactics type game. Uh, it was three. It it played in sort of isometric three D space. It it looked good for the time. It was, as I recall, I enjoyed it, but not so much as wow. I really hope to make they make a, a, another one. So this is one of the things that happened when Shadow Tactics came out was people were started going nuts over, wow, there's finally a true Commando successor. I've been waiting so long for this. So Which I think was news it, to it me. Has, I didn't know people were been waiting for that. Yeah, it has a niche. Um, and I think it's more Commandos 2 than 1 maybe, but uh, there are... There is a fandom there, and I guess we're just not in that. So, sorry, Commandos well, heads. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the other part of it is, what I remember is the marketing being really, like... I remember coming to that game expecting a World War II tactics game, and it obviously is not that, right? Like, it's sort of stealth isometric puzzle game, which is, like, tactics adjacent but but not really like i remember getting really hung up on the fact that only one character could snipe and like only one character could use vehicles i was like do you expect me no i'm sorry this is not this is this is not realistic sir this is this is not how it was back then uh that was that was kind of my view on commandos so i i kind of didn't get it because i expected games to be way too literal and realistic and conflated those ideas with with being good uh, so yeah, I blew that one. Uh, yeah, sorry, teenage Rob. Yeah, that guy. That guy get was better an eventually. Uh, anyway, um, shall we get to the ultralisk in the room? Oh, so the Operation Art of War? Sure. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we have been talking so much about the RTS. We should just dig into it. Yeah. So when did you guys first meet StarCraft? I think I was I was on board pretty early. This is this is sort of the peak of my my time in the uh, the gaming community on CompuServe, and people were excited about this one, especially after Diablo was such a step forward for what Blizzard had done. So I, I was totally down for StarCraft, and not sure how long it took me to get to it, but I was. Uh, it's still one of my favorite campaigns. I think that Warcraft 3 transcended it, you know, half a decade later, but at the time, this was just like, holy shit, you can actually tell a story in these games that doesn't make me want to die. So, uh, that was big, and Blizzard's getting their interface right, they're getting the graphics right. I was really leery of this game. 
because do you remember i mean you guys like obviously it's part of the you know the the lore around starcraft at this point but like i remember reading the early previews from the first attempt blizzard sort of made at the game uh when it got it got it sort of knock as got, got sort of that bad rap as being orcs in space uh and it was very like what if warcraft 2 but like the backdrop was a star field and then everyone fought on like goopy platforms uh because like space bugs or something and so i was really like at this time i was pretty convinced that like blizzard probably had a loser on their hands and I, I was, I was pretty, so I was pretty suspicious of it basically right up until, uh, I started to play it, uh, obviously. And so I think I started playing it over at a friend's house and, you know, it's funny at the time, uh, it was utterly captivating. I suspect I would find that, that campaign a bit less captivating now, uh, it would probably come across as very, very crude. And also some of the weird, um, ad hoc ways that game came together, you can still sort of recognize the weird outline of that right like the fact that the opening cutscene doesn't really match up with anything you see later in the game uh aesthetically mm-hmm. like just nothing in that opening makes sense uh as being starcraft and and yet there this, it is this is how blizzard like operated like there were stories about diablo when it had its 20th anniversary a couple of years ago, uh, where the developers of Diablo didn't know that they were going to have the main character take the soul stone into their head until, like, the game released. They found that cutscene in their game because the cutscenes were made in an entirely right, different Blizzard North part or of the something, country. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I was... Yeah, I was super skeptical of it, and then I started playing it, and then I think that there were a couple things... Uh, one is that, at least to me, the idea of having such different factions all in one game was kind of revolutionary uh, to me. And I'm sure the idea had at least been broached before. I, I don't think StarCraft was the first game to really embrace asymmetry uh, you know, completely. But it was certainly my first exposure to it in an RTS where like the, these factions were so radically different. It wasn't just a matter of a few specialty units, but like literally, um, you know, playing Terran felt completely different than playing the Zerg, right? The idea that like they had created a game where you would have that feeling of, you know, a few, a handful of beleaguered high tech human badasses just being swarmed by like these disgusting critters, uh, you know, out to kill them. And the game actually felt that way. Like the, the factions actually seemed to even play that way a, a little bit. Uh, and you know, that was kind of revelatory for me at the time. Yeah. I, there had been games that had differences in the factions, but Combining that with Blizzard's aesthetic sense, and that there were three instead of two, uh, and then you know adding in a campaign that's notably more interesting than almost any other RTS campaign was just like hammered home. These things are these things are different enough in a way that like you will personalize them. You will make one of them your own. You will have or not even necessarily one of them you'll make all of them your own in different ways you will have your zerg style you'll have your human style you'll have your protoss style and that 
that's one of Blizzard's greatest gifts that this is, you know, and this is the era where they're at their peak is taking a genre that exists and making it something that you just really want to get into the world they've made for it. Try, I mean, like, obviously, like, it's one thing for me who was a little, a little bit naive of the genre at the time to have been so swept up in this and, and, and transported by it. I'm curious what you made of it. I remember when I first saw it, uh, StarCraft. It was in my my ex brother in law uh, showed it to me when we were in California for 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 Christmas uh, that year. And he said, oh, you have to you have to see this new game. You, have to, you haven't you haven't you haven't seen StarCraft yet. You have to watch. You have to see StarCraft. So I had a small budget. I didn't buy a whole lot of games. I read about StarCraft. Didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. And it looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. I'd played you know it's Age of Empires. I played Warcraft and a few other RTSs. Um, at StarCraft, it, my first reaction was not positive. It was very much my resist, my general resistance to science. I'm not a science fiction guy. I've said this before. My general resistance to science fiction kind of colored my attitude towards it. It's like, ugh. so I've got to run aliens. I've got to play aliens. I don't want to be an alien. I don't want to be an astronaut killing aliens either. Um, so... The story didn't do anything for me. The setting didn't do anything for me. It just, I just kind of ignored it. Just didn't pay much attention to it at all. It wasn't until a couple of years later when I found it cheap uh, at a game store that I picked it up for myself. Oh, I'll try this out. That I really appreciated what this game was doing. I mean, it, there, yeah, yes, there may have been other games that had asymmetric sides, but not on this scale. I mean. This is like super asymmetry. The three sides are so different. They have such different pacing issues. You you can call, you know, you you personalize your approach. This is where you get specialization, where you have where competitive multiplayer becomes kind of possible in the way that, oh, this guy is a good Zerg player. This guy is a good Protoss player. Where the people start to get per the people start to get personalities. Um and you can entire you can be entirely awful at one entire faction because you specialize spent so much time playing one. You've played you've played the Zerg and all you only play the Zerg. I know people who only play the Zerg. They refuse to play anything else. Um, which was you know not very interesting. I don't want to play the Zerg all the time online, I don't want to fight against them. Uh, but that's how it was. People would they'd find a style of they find a a, a personality, a, 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 the factions had, had, had character. And before that, factions didn't really have character. You couldn't say, even in Age of Empires 2 and Age of Kings, yes, the Teutons were, you know, were one way, and the Franks were another, and the Mongols were another, but you couldn't really attach a personality to them. Here, the factions had a personality, and that was something entirely new. Um, where you could curse the Zerg and actually see them as an alien seeping force. Um, you didn't really have units, facts before that behaved in that spammy take over the world type way with crappy little units that you would prepare for, that you'd be ready for. Um, StarCraft is probably one of the two or three most important strategy games ever made uh, for a number of reasons, and it's I'm kind of sorry to see it dip a bit in multiplayer online popularity. Not that I was ever really into uh, watching it in 
are following it in any detail. Esports really has never been my uh, great passion. But I liked knowing StarCraft was there. I liked knowing that this major real-time strategy game had still had a place. Um, it is such a crucial game for understanding how real-time strategy games shift after this, where you have the movement away from slowly but surely, you get the movement away from a bunch of factions which are mostly the same but have a few differences. You see that still in Rise of Nations, which comes a couple of years after this, to the shift of here are factions which are really, really different from each other. And even like Age of Empires 3 has tries to split the difference a bit, but there are more differences than there are similarities. But you compare like Rise of Nations to its sequel, Rise of Legends. And, you know, it's clear that big, huge games took the lesson that People really want three very different personalities uh, in their faction design. It's better to have a few well-characterized factions than a bunch of different stuff. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think it's necessarily the best policy, but we saw it in Age of Mythology. We saw it in Rise of Legends. Uh, the Command and Conquer series moved increasingly uh, in this way. And I think... Uh, StarCraft was not just a just a, a, a brilliant game, the way that it's designed, the way that it's paced. I'm not into campaigns. I didn't follow the story all that closely. But I understand the cutscenes were nice. Um, it is Thanks, a great, Dad. It, it's, it's a great... It, and the art, I mean, the color. Uh, you know, it's mostly dark maps with an odd purple and bluish hue in a lot of places. And that's... That's not attractive, but they made it look good. It worked. It's uh, <clears throat> it's an unlikely game uh, in a lot of ways. Like the you know thing I refer to a lot when it comes to StarCraft, uh, talking about the design of it is the um, is the Team Liquid post uh, where I'm not sure who the author was, uh, but breaking down the way that they sort of brute forced the Warcraft 2 uh, top-down uh, coordinate grid system into a faux, uh, like, into into sort of a forced perspective illusion of depth, uh, you know, sprite-based game, uh, really made it such an oddly controlling game. And it's really noticeable if you went back and played much with it for... Um, when the remastered edition came out, uh, it is funny to me the degree to which we just internalized at the time the odd ways that um, StarCraft units behaved and the weird ways they moved and the, the odd interactions they had with objects on the map, like bridges, like choke points, like corners. Um, when I went back and I played... and I played StarCraft Remastered, I was really stunned at how hard it is to get any of these little bastards to move where you tell them to go and to like sort of like choose a correct course to go attack the target you want them to attack. Uh, and at the time I didn't really catch any of this. It was invisible to me. Uh, but now that like, we've had a pretty much a decade of playing like true 3d games, Starcraft, uh, you know, various other RTSs where units do go where you indicate where like the, 
having the positioning on the map is kind of one-to-one to to what you see. And then you go back and you play a game like StarCraft and you realize just what just you you can you can feel all those weird creases and and all those weird compromises uh, that they had had to make in order to make that game on that tech at that time uh and it is it, it is such an odd thing uh but it it's kind of in some ways it is bottled lightning uh because as is so often the case compromises maybe drive interesting creative decisions and and bold creative decisions um because I don't think, you know, they had to sort of scrap their original design. They clearly struggled to make the game work on the on the on the engine they had. Um, and I think it, you know, nobody would have chosen to make StarCraft the way Blizzard ended up making it. But it is this sort of titanic success uh, that you know was kind of impossible to replicate even for Blizzard, and that has a lot to do with changing market conditions and expectations. Uh, but it also has something to do with the fact that, like, you know, when StarCraft II rolls around, you don't have to make those compromises anymore. You can make something that is a lot cleaner, a lot more straightforward, a lot faster, um, a lot more elegant in some ways, or at least something that seems a lot more elegant. Uh, and yet at least some of the charm for a lot of people was, uh, you know, irretrievably lost in that process. So it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting game. And I, the, other, the other thing worth pointing out is that the original game has, has a great campaign. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but that is also a deeply unbalanced game. Like there are a lot of things that just don't really work quite right in Starcraft. Uh, and it really takes brood war to bring the game to like its its final state right like like how weird is it that the marines had the stim ability in starcraft one but they couldn't heal so if you stimmed you took 10 points of damage out of your 40 and that was it and you could like literally stim your units to death i want to say um and nobody like thought about maybe fixing that until like a year later one of the interesting things i noticed when i looked up these dates was that brood war actually comes out six months later starcraft is in like april and brood wars in october or something which is, really they're both that year yeah bizarre as hell when you consider how things go this time maybe blizzard was just like okay we know we're working on it yeah uh the thing you were talking about with the uh the compromises making it perhaps even more interesting uh and at the esports level, this reminds me of why people are still playing Smash Brothers Melee, because it has that that like weird hiccup that you can do where you can do a half jump or a half dodge. I don't remember exactly what it is, but there's some quirk about the programming in that game that higher level players started using as a key strategy. And when I read the the posts that people would write, and this may be the same Team Liquid one. Um, that you were talking about, the ones about how the strategies developed around organizing where you're putting your dragoons when they have a choke point because it behaves so oddly. So you have to develop that strategy. Like Sometimes that turns into a bonus. Sometimes that makes a game last longer for the people who play it all the time. That's not me. I wasn't on the competitive side. I, I, I probably played like three games of StarCraft Online, but... Uh, that helps the reputation and you know it it hits it hits korea especially when the the internet cafes 
are ready for it and it has staying power for the people who want it to have staying power and Starcraft is still a dominant force in our industry, at least socially, if no longer commercially quite as well it was. Well, it's it's also just a weird thing about like accessibility and um like Smash is an interesting case because like everybody I I remember like everybody had fun playing uh melee back back in the day right like i mean it was it was a lot of fun and it, like i rarely felt like i was running up against the fact that this was a really like hardcore game and then therefore it wasn't for me uh but they sort of inadvertently made a really intensely hardcore game with a, a ridiculously high skill ceiling and i think now there's maybe a lot more i think a lot of studios are much savvier in how they try to uh, manipulate like skill ceilings and control for it and the ways they try to dial in accessibility. Uh, and I'm not sure. I think these are superficially easy things uh, to, to design for and control, but maybe it's harder to understand how that's going to come across to the player. Uh, you know, it's like Starcraft two is like Starcraft one is in many ways a harder, fussier, trickier game than StarCraft 2, and yet StarCraft 2 felt daunting to people in a way that StarCraft 1 never did. Is that just because they're playing online? That's part of it. StarCraft 2 pushed them toward that. Whereas StarCraft 1, you played online, you you played locally, or you played over dial-up, and you didn't know how much you sucked. Uh, Maybe that's it. But I also just kind of wonder, there's there's certain, uh, you know, in ineff- there's an ineffability uh, to, to some of these things when we talk about the way games feel and the way we relate to them uh, that maybe doesn't always get the attention or humility it deserves uh, in context of, of modern design uh, and appreciation for the limited ways we can actually control for the ways that players will experience something. Um I think this sort of goes back to what you were saying about the uh, um, uh, or what we were saying about the the divide in like the hardcore players and the generalists that's occurring in this era is that Starcraft found a hardcore audience and that becomes more rare when you know like you know where your audience is it's on your Steam forums or it's on your mm-hmm. Reddit or whatever Uh this is a thing that happens organically and like Blizzard probably expected and planned for it to some extent because they had had significant online success with Warcraft 2 and Diablo but even still something something struck lightning here beyond I suspect what anyone might have uh, anyone might have expected so I have a question for you all just moving the, moving the conversation along to city builders um, I got way into Caesar 3 uh, in this era, like Caesar three is my Caesar, uh, but that's probably the only city builder uh, I played from this list. And I totally missed that this is the start of the Anno series. Uh, so I'm just curious, like if you guys played around much in the uh, you know city management sim uh, around this time. We got some we got some significant management sims uh, in this year. Before we take that step, did we have any opinions about Dune 2000? Oh, I I love the shit out of that game. Best command and conquer game ever made. No, I mean, it was corny. It was cool. It was it was sort of I think peak Westwood. 
uh good good catch there i did i did really like that game i thought it was cool as hell um it is corny it's it feels like dune uh but also feels a little bit like the later dune books written with written by kevin j anderson uh so it's kind of a mixed bag right where it's like half good and also half like eh, you're just trying to tie a name to some uh dog shit ideas but i liked it it was cool um i'll never forget uh sort of maneuvering an army through a through a highliner uh that was that was cool as hell all right city builders city builders and management games because this is this is probably the genre that has the most variety beyond the i guess the rts if you're including rebellion and battle zone and stuff there but uh we got yeah we've got Caesar 3 and Railroad Tycoon 2 and Populous the Beginning, which I think might have been bad. I don't remember exactly. Troy might know. And Anno. I never played a Populous game. You don't I, have to play. You don't have to, you only have to play Populous 2. I've tried Populous, to play Anybody Populous needs games. to play is Populous 2. Uh, the, yeah, the, Anno 1602, uh, it was the first Anno game, and it's kind of sets the pattern for really European uh city games where there's where scarcity of resources and rationing of resources and making sure you plan out the map right is the entire point where you can't where your resources will vanish so if you put your uh if you spend all of your stone in the first 20 minutes good luck you better find hope better hope you find an island that has more stone oh wait you can't settle another island without stone well that's too bad you have no more stone the game's over um, so you have to be kind of careful and kind of learn your way uh, through the supply chain. Uh, generally, very complicated supply chain, um, but always very good looking, always very attractive, um, and a lot like Caesar Three, a lot like like a lot of the, of the games of the city builders of this time. Um, they were kind of math puzzles in trying to get everything laid out properly so that your walkers or your resources took the minimum number of steps to get to where they needed to go, but they would always get to where they needed to go. Uh, Caesar 3 was, yeah, it was the first, I mean, I played Caesar 2, and I liked Caesar 2, but Caesar 3 is the one that I first put tons of hours into. It was, a lot of people didn't like it at the time, so it was kind of a cartoony look to it. Caesar All the 3? walkers kind of looked, yeah. Really? Because I remember just being utterly captivated by it at the time. I guess it was, it was cartoony in the way a lot of games from that era were cartoony. Oh, yeah. I mean, but you, you, you'd click on the walkers and they'd say some stupid pun or something. Right. Uh, and they're they're just, always actors and, rehearsing their lines. Right. And Caesar 2 didn't have that. They were, you, the walkers were just walkers. They were just, so the, they, the Caesar they were just ants. were. So, you, so you know, it was, it was it was it was exactly uh, the, the the marble yeah. nerds, and so some people. I, but it, it was absolutely charming. Uh, things had the right size. Like you would build a Colosseum in Caesar two, and yeah, it was a building, but it didn't look huge. Caesar three, it tended to look big. It looked like a building people would go into. I mean, not these tall-ass walkers who were eight stories tall, but the regular Romans, you know, the, the buildings looked big. Um, Caesar three had a beautiful color, great design, amazing interface. Uh, I think I think Caesar four is a much better game, but 
But season three, I think, is where a lot of people started coming, started falling for the impression city builders. Because after this, you get the explosion of, uh, you get Zeus, you get Pharaoh, you get all of these games, uh, which have different emphases uh, and, you know, different strengths and weaknesses. But Caesar 3 is kind of where the idea of what an impressions game becomes solidified, even though there were games before this. Yeah, this is, I think, one of three of A's favorite series. We talk about it as much as we possibly can, right? The Impression City Builders are kind of our touchstone. For, yeah. for City Builders, We're, at least. For, yeah, for, for City Builders. I mean, we, we've never actually done an episode on one. Oh, that, no, that can't be true. I th- like, in, in first gen 3MA, I'm sure we, did, we got to it. Oh, I'm quite sure we did. I mean, we started the, the show started in 2009. Nobody have talked about an Impression City Builder. Yeah, I mean, we we spent a lot of time talking about it when we did our survival strategy show. Yeah, we talked we talk, we talk, we talk about the we talked about the the impressions games in general, not about yeah, a specific game true. and yeah. its specific strengths and weaknesses. In yeah. general, well, yes, the impressions games stand out, but we've never done like a classic game analysis of Pharaoh or anything. Yeah, I, I never played the Caesars before this. I just I don't remember what brought me to Caesar three Probably exactly, the war gaming. but. The, 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 oh, the, the box. It is a beautiful box with a full. It did have a beautiful box. Top, a beautiful um, colors. So, yeah, it was probably the box. Uh, I might have caught it on, like, uh, on a discount or something. But, yeah, the, the way that it had constrained scenarios in a way that made sense, but you, could all, you also like, went back to the cities, plus the, the appeal of the, the builder and the walker system. Um, I. Apparently, like my city builders to be not abstracted, and I like my RTSs to be extremely abstracted. So that's an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the more direct movement and uh, movement of population and construction and gathering of resources is something that really appealed to me. Pharaoh, I put a lot more time into, and it's arguably the best in the series, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a complexity level, but Zeus is the one that I fell in love with uh, because I was a Greek geek and it also had a whole bunch of quality of life improvements on the other games. Uh, but yet these are these are good shit except for maybe the military aspect. So you know how Teenage Rob Ruin this game for himself? How did Teenage Rob Ruin this game He convinced himself? himself that the military, military track was the one he wanted to pursue. Like oh, I was like, I, I love I love war games. I love military history. Roman legions are cool. And so you remember that campaign basically forks. Like for the most for the most part, you always have a choice. Like you can do the military mission, or you can do the uh, you can do the mission where you don't have to mess with barbarians. Basically, so are you on the frontier or are you at home uh, and just trying to build a you know cool Roman city? And I was always like, give me the frontier. I am going to spread the light of Roman civilization, and I am sure this will be fun because I love wargaming, and I love Roman legions, um, and this game isn't great for that. No. It, it's never been great for that. And they've always, and Caesar 3 was a step up from Caesar 2 and 1 in military, because there you had to fight the battles off the map, because there, there was a metagame above the city, and it was ass- uh, so Caesar three, they brought the battles into the cities. They had to build defenses, and they'd come after you. Um, or sometimes you'd give a legion to Caesar, and he'd go and do his stuff with it. Um, but 
it was just so awful having to build these, equip these armies and make sure you have enough of them and put them in the right places. Um, hope hope that they get manned in time. You don't get two invasions in a row. Well, and then so like bad. the power, I've, the the power, the difficulty spikes were crazy because like, because basically the, the the organizing principle of the Caesar of Caesar three is basically like if these barbarians are remem- are remembered as like unkillable badasses, then they're going to be unkillable badasses in the game. And we'll just make them basic, yeah, un- like literally unkillable. So like when you have Huns showing up in Caesar, it's like, well, you might as well just give up. Like those battles were so stacked against you, it felt like there wasn't anything you could do to really win them. Um or Lesser barbarians would would come along. Like I remember, I think you know the Gauls were basically tackling dummies, uh, you know, in that game, and you just roll over those guys. Uh, you know, sorry Gauls, um, you're, you're you're no Belgians. Yeah, I don't I don't know why they insisted in pretty much all their games to have some sort of military thing, and it's. This is why I like Zeus because you would like have a hero in your city and. Heracles would just go smash all the barbarians for you, and that was that. Yeah, uh, it made a lot more sense in, the, in that context. But, but I mean, but I mean, and Railroad Tycoon Two was, I think, my first Railroad Tycoon game, the first thing I got into. I think this is uh, the big one. This is the one that blew up and was everywhere for the next like ten years. Any discount CD rack has a, a Railroad Tycoon or six for ten bucks. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't when I rediscovered the original Railroad Tycoon, I realized, wow, the original was so much better. Uh, the Railroad Tycoon Two, it's got a much more interesting uh, business uh, sim game, and the maps more interesting. Than the city development is, but Railroad Tycoon Two is still very faithful to the original Railroad Tycoon model. Um, there is, you can, you know, bankrupt your competitors. The cities do develop based on which ones you service and which ones you don't. Um, the rail building isn't as good. It's just kind of weird. The railroad uh, building is kind of a little more annoying and fussy. Um, but it really looks good. I think a lot of the railroad, railroad games since that one have come to, to borrow the aesthetic from Railroad Tycoon 2. I think you're right. It is the one that got really, really big. Yeah, the, the first right. one... Go ahead. The first one was like the the classic game that shows up on the lists, and this is the one that was in every cereal box. Yeah. At least that's my recollection of it. But I'm you know, the, played focusing because I'm an idiot. But focusing on the aesthetics is like a trend that you know, Firaxis has had that we've talked about on some of our, our other shows about their games that has worked really well for them in a lot of ways, but maybe with this one it did not. I I could never get into it. The railroads are not my thing. Railroad Tycoon 2, that wasn't a Firaxis game. That was a pop top. Oh, was it? Why well, do I just remember Sid Meier was on the first one? Because he did okay, the first Okay, but one. after that it's not him at all. Railroad Tycoon 2 is, is pop top. It was, it was published by Take Two and, and uh, Gathering of Developers. Oh if yeah. anybody remembers Gathering of Developers uh, way back in the day. This is a Phil Steinmeier joint. Uh, so, it's a, so it's it's a different Meyer. Phil Steinmeier. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, this is somehow they ended up with the uh, license or the name uh, Railroad Tycoon. I'm not sure how that all broke down. But no, this is not a Firaxis game. 
or, or a microprose game because yeah Fire Tycoon was microprose so popping the break with microprose this fell there somewhere yeah microprose went boom so um I guess you know I'm feeling like we should we should start to you know narrow this down and uh maybe name some favorites but uh you know last shout outs uh to just any games that haven't gotten any like love on this list you know there's some big ones right unreal the first marvel versus capcom uh anything here that just like damn it you like should probably it. say something about operation lord of war I and mean, we know we've talked about it in the podcast before not always in global well, we'll terms. talk about it when we get to best war game of the year okay uh, we're, we're, we're cleaning this up uh, I will give a fighting game shout out because Tekken 3 and Soul Calibur are two of my all-time favorites and we haven't mentioned those Soul Calibur is perhaps even my favorite game on this just in terms of like what it was for me at this time socially um, it was it was like the game that I played with my college friends and uh, it was fully deserving of that this is not merely a nostalgia thing but uh, I I Love that game dearly. Um, for me, I think a, a game here that I, I really do, uh, you know, love quite a bit is Descent Free Space. Uh, like, obviously, Free Space 2 is the masterpiece in this series. Uh, you know, greatest space shooter, uh, space sim ever made. But Descent Free Space uh, sort of gets, you know, launches that. And even at the time, it was cool as hell, and it was really unexpected thing in the first place, right? Like, Descent were kind of just they're they're fun 3D shooters. Uh, I, I I never really liked them that much because I, I found they were they required just a little bit too much spatial awareness and reasoning, uh, and they kind of overwhelmed me. But they certainly didn't have anything that made you think like, ah, this is going to be a good setting for space opera. And D- Descent Free Space basically is totally unrelated to the Descent games. Uh, but it, you you could already tell like it was they were making strides in the direction of like really blowing out the scale of things, these things, uh, you know, far beyond what you'd encountered in the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games. Uh, you know, I guess sort of the parallel is European Air War, right? Like, this is the direction Descent Free Space is going is, you know, what if we created these ever more vivid and expansive feeling, uh, like, space battlefields? And that obviously comes to fruition with descent two, uh, with, with free space two, but free space one makes some really good strides, uh, in that direction. And also totally nails this feeling of, um, remember the game starts out, you're fighting the Vasudans, uh, you know, the aliens that humanity has been at war with for ages. And then the, like after several missions of that, uh, like the first act of the game, you're largely fighting the Vasudans, uh, and it feels like a pretty standard, like, you know, humans versus Kilrathi type uh, clash. And then these, like, really weird alien ships start showing up and just, like, cleaning house. And they're untargetable, they're unkillable, you can't bust their shields down. Um, and it's all about, like, sort of overcome, like, you know, settling the one war really quickly to find common cause against this really terrifying new enemy. Um, yeah, it's 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 a great space shooter. Uh, when when we get around to uh, the you know the year of Free Space Two, uh, which I think might be ninety nine or two thousand, 
Um, we'll get into why that is maybe the greatest of those games uh, of that genre ever made. But Descent Free Space is a really is a really great start, um, and a game very special to me. Uh, Troy, anything else on this on this list that uh, you know you think deserves a little a little love? Well, I, I really like Baldur's Gate. I'm just going to say that. I think it's an important game, I think, for me personally. Uh, Goodfellow to Kaiser. Drop dead. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a game that has, in my own personal history, it's a game that really, really stands out for me. So a little shout out there to it. I think it's I think it's, it's really good and really important, and we should celebrate it, and Rowan is wrong. Um, I, I, have, I wrote a review of the remastered version where I, I tried to give it as much respect as I possibly could. Much like Half-Life, it's a game that like my gut rejection of it has turned into a, a begrudging respect. I, I, and I think Dance, Dance Revolution is one of those games I, that I really wish I could play. You have all of these games. It's like, wow! I wish I was good at Dance Dance Revolution because it looks like it's so much fun and reasonably healthy. And wow, it would be so good to be able to do those things. And like, I don't want to be a good StarCraft player, but I want to be able to be good at Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> One you know, day, that's Troy. a good shout out, though. Like, that is a great. That is a great freaking game. And that was like, that was a game that got me and my friends hitting the arcades for a good five years after there was anything else that we wanted to play right like arcades were kind of done but like there was ddr so might as well go to the you know go to the place next to the uh, batting cages so uh one of the stories that i think is important about the year these years the mid 90s is the genre consolidation like all of these, all of the genres that we play with now, except for a few like mobile and social style things, get invented and popularized and honed in in the in these few years. And the last one that really comes out is Dance Dance Revolution. Like that's that's the last of these things that is still like holy shit, mind blowing. This is a totally new way to go. Uh, so it's it's a tremendously important game for a lot of reasons, but also uh, that is a game that I like totally fucked my knee up in college playing and still kept playing it. Yeah, I uh, there there were some there were some risky moves uh, that like, when you when you'd be trying to like twit like when you'd have to rapidly twist between the um, up down and left right positions in like rapid succession. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, Along the lines of Baldur's Gate, there, there's just a ridiculous number of RPGs this year, and like they're worthy of their own full show. Uh, not mentioning Secret in Two yet is like incredibly off-brand for me. Um, what is it? One of my, that is a JRPG. It's kind of a throwback. It's sprite-based. It's not uh, and turn-based. It's not like a modern Parasite Eve sort of running around in a 3D world kind of thing. Um, but I don't, What is Paradise Eve? You're talking gibberish. What is Paradise Eve? Oh, shit, this game looks One awesome. day you'll play your console. <laughs> Paradise Eve or Suikoden 2? I'm looking at screenshots for Suikoden 2, and holy shit, the sprite art is gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous, and it was like weird at the time because everything had gone 3D. It came out like the same week as Final Fantasy VIII, which I think I forgot to put on this list. Or maybe... The Japanese and American releases were were different for those. That's probably what happened there. Um, but uh, 
it also had a really good grasp on how to make villains and how to make tragedy. Uh, it's not about you save the world from, you know, one person who's just gone insane and is evil and that's all there is. There are human villains. There are, like, Ramsey Snow-level Game of Thrones-style well, villains yeah. or uh it's got it's got heads on pikes like it's it's very politically oriented with that cutesy jrpg charm um great music it's Damn. probably a top three jrpg for me uh only behind chrono trigger and maybe one or two others how do i do this now but ticket in two i believe is on ps4 oh, or the ps3 shop or something like that yeah i'm looking at this and i'm it just also, like riveted by these these screenshots it's also importable uh, from, you, you can import like your characters and stuff from Secret and One. There's like only two de- choices that really matter, uh, but there, there's aspects of that which are interesting for uh, the idea of like the serialized RPG that um, is filled with a lot until Mass Effect blows it open in another decade. All right, yeah, I'm going to have to take a look at that. Because this looks really cool. Um, all right, so we should probably just start like looking at what our favorites uh, of this year were, like what we sort of think nailed the genre. We've covered most of the ground we need to cover, but um, might as well start with War Game because we haven't talked about this game, and it's it's a thin year for War Games. I think uh, you know we talked a little bit about People's General, uh, but I think for me, like the best War Game of that year, and still one of my favorite War Games ever made, is the original. Uh, operational art of war uh which was norm norm coger's uh operational level war game largely focusing on world war ii era operations uh although people rapidly discovered that because world war ii involved a lot of old and aged military hardware that basically there was enough there for tables of organization and equipment for conflicts going back into the late 1800s so in no time at all you had lots of scenarios being built about around World War One, uh, various you know colonial conflicts, uh, you know Japan's various wars, uh, you know in the years leading up to World War Two. But um, it is a game that I love to pieces, even though like its flaws are well known at this point. Um, you know, Bruce has always been very pointed in his critique that the operational art of war is kind of this. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of chasing a white whale of an idea that you can, if you just create a system where you can, in a super granular fashion, add in all the correct, historically correct information for what was at a battlefield at a particular place, and then put it on the correct map, you've therefore created a reasonable facsimile of that conflict. Uh, and that's not really possible in any system, but the operational art of war gives it about the best try we've we're probably ever going to see and in the hands of really good scenario designers it could be pretty flexible to allow uh fairly bespoke scenarios uh but it is you know it's it's one of the few games uh that i found that that really does you know i i never finished that game i never got tired of it right like if you if you if when i found a new a good new operational art of war scenario it was like i had found a new game i must have played the uh the korea scenario uh at least a half dozen yep. times by email um 
So yeah, I mean, for me, this was the this was the war game uh, of of my teenage years. This this was the king. I I just want to say I I never actually played the first one, but I think the second one had most of the scenarios added, uh, and went further into the future and tried to fiddle with the system. So I don't know that my experience was exactly this this first one, but it was even though it was chasing the white whale you're talking about, maybe not historical. They were often good games in there like you know there was a one in three chance that i could enjoy just any of the scenarios that i would randomly click on and the korea one especially was one that i spent the most time in because it it managed to feel like the full war but in a relatively manageable fashion yeah we give this game a hard time a lot on the show and i mean this is a this is the game where i first learned to recognize bruce garrick's name because of all the stuff Bruce Garrick wrote about how he did not like the Operation <laughs> Art of War uh, back for, 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 for GamesDomain.com uh, back in the late 90s. He had, and his strategy columns on other sites. So, oh, this guy's interesting. What's his name? It's Bruce Garrick. Interesting. So this is, I learned, this is what I learned to look for his, his, his byline. Uh, but this is a game that, yeah, it's got the interesting design conceit, but it opened up this wealth of creativity in the community because of the idea that, oh, if you just add all these units together, you have firepower and movement numbers automatically or something, if you knew what uh, a unit's composition was. And you could look that stuff up, you could look at the order of battle, and you could have the maps design the scenarios. Um, eventually, so you'd get this wide range of scenarios. Now, 10 gamers being what they are, they would tend to make these monster scenarios. You would have a guy, someone doing, here's all of the Western Front in 1914. It's like, no, no, this is not what this game is for. Uh, so it would break down in very weird ways. But you'd also have some really well done uh, small engagements. You'd have uh, neglected uh, fronts of World War II or of um, Ethiopia in the late 30s. You would have some some of the Asian War, the Chinese-Japanese War, because that stuff was generally not covered that well in the base game. So he made this, Koger made this playset that opened up a lot of energy, I think, in the war game fan community. Um, And you would not always get, sometimes there'd be this weird thing, well, well, somebody's already done this battle, so I don't have to do that battle which is great, but no, if that battle's done poorly, please do it again. But you, So you have this weird, let's just get a list of all the battles instead of let's try to get a battle done right. That said, this is a game that I loved. Uh, I haven't tried the new Operational Art of War yet, so I'm kind of curious as to whether they've fixed things like it never did air power very well. This is a game really about what's going on on the ground. and But it, it, you could really get some interesting... Challenges. It was. It is not a difficult war game to play. It's not a difficult war game to understand. You know. You know what the movement is. You know what you setting up. You know multiple avenues of attack is relatively straightforward. Uh, the documentation was excellent. The in-game help was actually very good for a late '90s war game. Um, and it, I think it is. I don't think you get games like. Um, command modern air naval operations. I mean, yes, that is a, it is a successor to Harpoon, but I don't think you get something like that without an operational art of war 
in there as well because that I think this is a game that really let loose the idea of amateurs who are really interested in scenarios can upload a bunch of them online and the community can point out which ones are good or which ones are bad. Uh, and Simano's been making very good use of promoting its uh, community uh, scenarios and you know, setting them aside, highlighting some, and it's done very, very well with that. And I think that the uh, creative forces of Operation Art of War made that possible. Uh, yes, you had other scenario builders before this. You had, you know, uh, Age of Rifles. You had uh, even Harpoon to some extent, but nothing on the scale of Operation Art of War. Age of Rifles cover as well, right? Uh, yes. Was Horse and Musket him as well? Uh, no. Yeah. That's the, is the other interesting thing is like, this was kind of the most, because um, Norm Cogar was always in, sort of one of those, he liked designing tool sets, games that were as much tool sets yeah. as they were games. Uh, and that sort of came to a screeching halt with uh, his shift toward naval war games. Um, God, what was the one he made after this? Is the one about the uh, Russo-Japanese War, um, distant oh, guns? Yeah, yeah, yes. which was kind of cool, but like uh, I think just sort of struggled with with its own interface. But yeah, uh, I loved this game. Also, yeah, I think uh, it still has maybe the best treatment of the the Italian campaign of any war game I've ever played. Yeah. One of my favorite that and the Korean scenarios are my favorite. This, okay, Operation Art of War was the king of the peninsular warfare war games. Like, if you really <laughs> want you to go. see a game that nailed uh, peninsular conflicts, well, that actually makes sense with the scope, yeah. right? If you're doing the, if you're doing the whole Western Front, or if you're or if you're trying to s- separate the Western Front into bits and pieces, then something's always going to be off-map that maybe could be included or maybe couldn't. But when you're on a peninsula, you, there's, not, there's not another army corps that's standing in the water on the edge, yeah. you know? No, but, the, but then you run into the way this game does boats. Yeah, but at least with Italy, yeah. you only the, the, the boats played a limited role, whereas, like, the Pacific yeah. campaigns, oh, my God, the way you just have those long... Like, you just, like, watch the AI take its turn, and it was, like, 20 minutes of units loading on the sea transport and just like motor boating across the ocean for like, like just endless strings of them. It was, it was terrible, but uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was a war game that let people give into their best and worst instincts. Um, but for me, I think it was the war game of the year. Um, yeah. We all, there really nothing else comes close. I mean, yeah, I like great battles of Caesar, but it's not going to stand uh, on this level. That's, of the great battles ones, that's the one I remember the least. So I'm not going to... Yeah, well, there's a good reason for that. I mean, because it is a game... Because where um, Great Battles of Alexander and Great Battles of Hannibal were different military systems colliding against each other. Great Battles of Caesar, half Great Battles of Caesar are legions versus legions. Yeah. So you don't have... And you have, also you have legions and you have legions versus gulls. And the only difference between legions and gulls is the gulls have less armor. But the strategy is pretty much the same. You run forward and beat a guy with a sword. You don't get the combined arms of the Alexandrian army versus the masses of Persia or the uh, mixed forces of Hannibal versus uh, the manipular legion of the Polybian Roman army. So you don't have... uh, You have some good battles, but it's largely just guys in red suits banging into each other. Um... 
what do we think was the, so of the of the management and city builder games of this year? What, do we do we think it's pretty clearly Caesar three? Yeah, yeah. I the only the only way that I would say it is not Caesar three is if if you guys had played Seven Kingdoms and thought that it might fit in that category better, but Caesar three otherwise. Yeah. Um. Grand Strategy 4X for this year. It really wasn't anything, was there? I mean, even there, Seven Kingdoms might be the closest. Yeah, I think Seven Kingdoms probably fits in that one the best. Uh, there's also Romance of the Three Kingdoms 6, which for a while, I don't know if this is still the case, given that they've doubled the amount of games in that series. Uh, for a while, that was considered sort of the peak of the that series as a strategy series. Uh Koei went in a more of a role-playing direction after, where you could play as any of the officers in any of the armies, so you could be just like a grunt hanging out in later games, but Romance of Three Kingdoms 6 was like the one that until 8 or 9, I think, was uh, the one that you you play as the, the Chinese warlord and you're trying to do your thing. However, the AI in all of those games was just made it unplayable if you were reasonably competent at all. Uh, so if Seven Kingdoms fits that better, which it probably does because it does, it feels like Civ. No one's going to get with me attached on the belly, to, right? I mean, if we cre- if we had a category for the most glorious failure, um, mm. yes. And we perhaps should because that's those are always the most fun to talk about. But you about. don't think... I, I just never, I just never thought I don't, it was that I'm, great I'm, of a I'm game. time with that, so I can't judge. I didn't get about Seven Kingdoms at all either, so I have no, I have no skin in this game whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, we could split it. I don't care that much. Uh, as long if this, if this causes one little girl to go play Seven Kingdoms, Rob, it will all have been worth it. All right, that that does sway me. Uh, it's about, it's about <laughs> inspiring uh, next generation. So. It's about the future. Yeah, Seven yes. Kingdoms. Seven, Seven Kingdoms is the Lisa Lionheart of video gaming. I am so depressed at that reference right now. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, I guess that's awkward yeah, today. So it's, uh, it? it's it's really grim timing uh, on that one. Um, so tactics is weird this year. Yeah. Um, best RTS slash real time tactics game. Well, best RTS is going to be. Yeah. Well, that's our grand winner, and we've been giving it to a non-grand winner here. Yeah. Uh, do you, Do you want to make a case for Myth Two? Do, is Is that a major step down? No, it's series, it's Rob? a it's a major step sideways. It's for it, it's it's more Myth. Like it's a very good okay. Myth game. I would be. So I I want to tell you a little about 1998 because I just remembered this. <sighs> uh, we can't be here for three hours again. You could you could take a break, Troy. So the the main thing I remember about Myth Two, right, is when it comes out, it has to be patched within like the first three right. days because its installation was wiping people's hard drives. Oh my the god! The uninstallation didn't stop at the Myth directory; it went to the root directory, right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. It would break your computer. Yeah. This is this is a thing that was still happening in 1998, or only happening in 1998. Immortalized in like, an this early is, penny this arcade is, strip. Yeah, um, 
this is this is probably even more ridiculous than Diablo, the original Diablo storing its uh, character information in the registry and Blizzard saying that that made it unhackable. Jesus. Uh, but yeah, Myth 2's legendary uninstallation was a pretty big black eye for that game and maybe why it's not held up as the great classic that the first one was. Anyway, carry on with the actual game itself. No, I mean... Uh- like it, it's it's more myth. We we talked about this a bit on the uh, on, on the myth show, uh, and I'd be happy to say it's the best RTS tactics game uh, of that year. If we're saying that StarCraft is pretty clearly you know the big winner, um, but it's I don't think it's entirely as satisfying as as Myth One. It's uh, it's trying to mix up a lot of things, and it's also trying to be a lot more difficult i think than myth one uh was at times so like myth two ends up basically shunting a lot of its bread and butter units to the side over the course of that campaign because i think about midway through it introduces um sort of the legendary monsters from the distant past uh the mercridia it reintroduces them into the world and they like will like just slaughter everything in their path until you get the um heron guard uh, named, of course, for our friend uh, David Heron, um, you know, and 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 his and his, his mighty physique and uh, abilities, and the Heron Guard are just the, the they're the counter to the Macridia. But what you end up with is a game that is kind of dominated by these like super units that carve through everything else that the rest of the Myth series has been built around, and that's not a fatal problem. Uh, there's, they, they mix up a lot of inter- interesting scenarios. And they don't completely let these units take over the game, but it does throw a lot of the balance off over the course of the game uh, that I think stops it from feeling quite as cohesive uh, and satisfying as Myth 1's, you know, medievals versus zombies uh, conceit. But it is still more myth, and therefore it is really great. So yeah, fine. I mean, I mean, that sounds like a stronger opinion than I have about Battle Yeah, <laughs> and none of us wanted to go to the bat for commandos. So yeah, well, I mean, look, it's just that's just not how armies fought back then. Um. <laughs> all right, so uh, the last two categories are best game of that year period and then best strategy game. Um. I mean, I think our, in our case, the answer is bo- the yeah, same in both I mean, of them. Is. But if we want to get a best non-strategy game, the only game I would maybe hold up as my my actual favorite for this year that might genuinely be like my best game in 1998 that isn't StarCraft is maybe Thief. Um, which is weird because there was a time I would have sworn up and down that Half Life was the greatest game of that year, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. For, Games have their season and sometimes it passes. I just don't react that way to Half-Life as much anymore. Um, whereas Thief still kind of haunts me and immiserates me uh, at, at times. Uh, but yeah, I think mean, both those categories, like in terms of games that I just played the shit out of and still hold up and, and find fascinating, I guess it is StarCraft for both of those categories. Yeah, I mean, we could we could probably spend half an hour arguing about the best game otherwise, but Troy will get grumpy. Yeah, we are tired. Uh, 
Um, like I said, mine is probably Soul Calibur or maybe Suikoden 2. Uh, but those are very personal, and that's just because Baldur's Gate, Half-Life, and Zelda are not really my things. Um, the Thief is also not a thing I ever connected with, but I have always respected it. It is not. It it, it never annoyed me like Half-Life fans ever did. Half-Life fans are fine. Uh, maybe not fans, but so much as the idea that this was the game that blew up all gaming and was by far the greatest shooter of all time. Well, and, but it kind of uh, did, though. Like, I mean, like... It kind of no did. No other game, like... I just didn't love yeah. it. That's the thing. Like, I, I recognize... I, I've come to a respect for it. It did a hell of a lot. It, it changed a hell of a lot. There are so many cool ideas. I just never actually loved playing it. Yeah, and I did. Uh, I'll never get over those fights against the Marines, for instance. There just wasn't enough of them. Uh, there was way too much shooting monsters in that game and not enough fighting Marines. Um, and then the game was just too freaking long. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's historical importance cannot be overstated. Like it was like every shooter, every, every action game that is sort of woven narrative into its playable sequences, uh, really elegantly that really like takes a massive leap forward with half-life, uh, in a way that I haven't seen before since. And also the ones that weave those things together inelegantly. That's that's an issue, but that's not Half-Life's fault. They did something really well, and a bunch of people tried to copy yeah. it poorly. That that happens when you're popular. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're all great at ain't Zelda. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think and I think StarCraft just ends up holding up, it, it, both in terms of reputation and then just in terms of how much I time I sank into it. It is the king of that year for me. Um. I don't remember exactly when Team Fortress Classic came out. I think it was actually the next year, but that kept me on Half-Life for a while because uh, I fucking love that. Yeah. Uh, so the the Half-Life disc has a, a, a warm place in my heart. But yeah, uh, yeah. All right. So I think that Troy, did you? Well, I think Troy's vote is for I just wanted to see if Troy podcast. Did... what. <laughs> no, I mean for me though, the, from my personal best favorite game of this year is European Air War. No shit. The best strategy game in StarCraft. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean European Air War is a game I put the most year, the most hours into. Like of the, uh, the games on this for Night Ninety Eight, but I put most hours into clearly European Air War. Which which Rowan, which Rowan left off his list, and I just remembered. I, yeah, I'm glad you remembered that because this is that. I'm totally gone on flight sims at this point. Yeah, the last one I played was like Aces of the Pacific. Um, yeah, but but StarCraft's clearly the best strategy game of the year. Yeah, and European Air War. I mean, hell, yeah. I mean, we could say probably the best sim of that year. Uh, certainly, the last crossover hit sim. Um, and man, I just wish it had been built for a slightly higher native resolution. Remember, I think it topped out at 640 by 480. So like the thing started to look really awful really quickly, uh, given its sort of recent vintage. Like by the mid 2000s, it was shocking uh, how how tough the game looked. But uh, yeah, it was it was glorious. Um, and I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure even the later uh, Sturmovic type games ever. Because the thing about European Air War is, like, I think they 
they did something like 250 aircraft could be aloft in the game at the same time. I'm not sure I've ever seen a game hit, game hit that scale. Um, I'm not sure it exists. But, all right, so that is, uh, that is 1998. Uh, and just a pretty, a pretty representative year for, I think, what our, what our, ideas and memories of 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 90s gaming are uh in in some ways yeah it's got rpgs that disappointed the hell out of me and great strategy games cool uh so (laughs) so that will do it for this week and for that year uh we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes, uh, who I'm sorry to say is going to have a nightmarish editing process ahead of him because uh, something is just weird about audio levels on my mic. I hope I hope it's not going to come through on the podcast, but like I've been trying to get this under control for about half the show, uh, and just something is off. So, Michael, I am so sorry. I see and appreciate all that you do, and I'm really sorry about the clipping, the peaking, and the ambient noise. Uh, my bad. Anyway, this show is also hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at 3 or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, 3MovesHead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MovesHead. Until then, for Rowan, for Troy, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. We have exhausted our Vespian gas.